Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is James 1, 13 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Good morning. Well, hey, welcome. My name is Justin Carl. I'm the pastor of Next Steps here. And today we're going to continue our series diving into the book of James, A Faith That Works. And I'm going to continue from Jamal's sermon two weeks ago. He preached on James 1, 1 through 12, and we're going to jump into verse 13 through 18 today. And the big point of Jamal's sermon was this, when trials come, we need to have steadfast faith. And steadfast faith looks like this. Steadfast faith is relying on God, rejoicing in God, requesting God's wisdom to help us through, and ultimately resting in God, saying my confidence is not in myself, my confidence is in the God who made me. And trials are tests from God, but he means us to pass them. Their trials are tests from God, and he means them to pass them for two reasons. One, to prove our faith genuine to ourselves, before God, before the watching world, but also to grow us to look like Christ. That's why God allows trials and tests in our life. But today, we move from trials to temptations, which are a little bit different. And the question becomes, what do I do when my trial becomes a temptation? And the Lord gave me a little parable to highlight this the other day. See, my daughter, she's turning three soon, and well, yeah, more like this. She's turning three soon, and she has seen pictures of me fishing. She's seen my fishing poles. She's seen other people fishing, and she started begging me every day, Daddy, let's go fishing. Daddy, let's go fishing. And she didn't understand it's the winter. They're not biting. But as it warmed up, I finally took her fishing. The day arrived. Here she is. This is Eloise. She got her fishing pole. We went with the adult size, probably a mistake. Got the backpack, the sandals. She's all pumped up, free as a bird. Um, her mom reminded me later I forgot sunscreen because I'm a mediocre parent, so she <laughs> came back roasty, but, you know, I, no one's perfect. Um, and she was doing great. She skipped out of the car. She danced down the trail. We got to the bridge. We got to our spot where we're, where we're going to fish. She, she even helped bait the hook. I don't think she realized what was happening to the worm, but things are going well. And I cast, it was early in the morning, and right away, we got a bite. And we got a big bite. And it was much more violent reeling in than I think Eloise had, had, had factored in. And by the time I pulled the fish out, the fish was bigger than she expected. The fish was scarier than she expected. And then the fish even flipped off the hook, hit the deck, and flopped towards her. And this resulted. We had sheer panic. Sheer panic. Life comes at you fast, you know? Um, 
And so that's where we are. When we think, when we think we have it all together and we're like, bring on the trials. And then they're a little bit bigger, they're a little more scary, and they're a little more unexpected than we probably considered. And today, there's only two main points of this sermon. It's a dense text, but it's a text with two big points. The first point is going, we're gonna look at sin's anatomy. The second point, we're gonna look at God's answer when panic strikes us, when temptation starts to get the best of us, when we fall into patterns of sin. But first, we're gonna look at sin's anatomy, and I want us to like put our doctor's vest on and our stethoscope, or however you say that. that we need to be doctors when we look at our sin. We're not looking at our sin to morbidly dwell on it. No, we're looking at our sin like a doctor looks at cancer to understand it, to know it, so that he can kill it, so he can heal our body, so he can remove it from our life. So we're gonna literally look at the anatomy of sin, the different pieces of how sin happens in our life as we go through these verses. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump right into sin's anatomy. Lord, Father God, I thank you for Sojourn Midtown. I thank you that this congregation is consistently one that says, feed me the scriptures. Lord, I want to be different. Lord, I want to fight my sin. I want to go, Lord. I want to grow. I want to be like you. And so, Lord, help us take the scriptures seriously today and implant it deep in our hearts, Lord. And may your Holy Spirit roll through me and roll in this room that we remember your words and mine burn away. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. Hey, look at your scriptures. Look at verse 13 with me. This is the first part of the anatomy of sin, and it always starts with deception. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And this is a deception, because it says something false about God. See, God has no part in evil and he tempts no one. So when we're in our trial and temptation starts to rise in the situation, we know that temptation's not from God, it's from us. We know the trial might be there from God, but the temptation is not. And the reason this deception is so critical is because every sin in our life starts with a deception. That was how the first sin started. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Eve and Adam were at the tree, and the serpent came, and he didn't say God is bad. He didn't say God is untrustworthy. He asked him a question. He said, did God really say you can't eat of this tree? And it was a subtle lie. God might not be totally good. God might not be totally truthful. And that's the problem with deception. As soon as we take it in, mistrust between us and God begins. And that becomes the soil this soil where evil desire can blossom. And if we look at Romans 1.25, it says this. This is what humans do. It says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. That's what humans do. That's what we do. That's what I do. My inclination is sinful to take good things and turn them into bad things. And the lie, whether it's God is tempting me or is God really good? Or is God really tell you the truth? It always looks something like this. Look with me here at this list. The lies in our life, the deception, always looks like something like this. God is not really good. God is holding out on me. Look what that person has. They're wicked, but look what they have. 
God's words can't be entirely true all the time. Surely he can't understand the complexities of my life and situation. Or really, here's a big one. God doesn't really love me. Jesus died for the whole world, but not really for me. Because he knows the real me, and no one would die for that. Surely God doesn't care. And this soil, it wells up, and then suddenly the next verse blossoms out of it is evil desire. So deception, then evil desire. Look at verse 14 with me. When we're deceived, suddenly each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And so we see the temptation springs not from God, but from our heart. And the thing is, God created you with desires. He created you with good desires. He created you with the desire to work, to have fun, to have joy, to rule, to reign, to have sex, to build a family, to be safe, to protect people, to connect relationally with people. But in this text, that word desire could be translated evil desire, lust, or maybe the best translation, over-desire or mad desire. When we, tr- we mistrust God, Suddenly our good desires go mad because we can't trust God anymore. And so our desire starts to over-desire things that otherwise might be good and we try to make them God. That's a process called idolatry. It's whenever we make some created thing to take the place where the creator should live. And for example, we're all made to work. We're all made to work and earn and do productive things. But when we overwork or we obsess about school or obsess about work or obsess about money, that's evil and over-desire, mad desire takes over as we try to make it fulfill what only God was meant to fulfill. And idolatry is this fruit of sin. And so that's sin's anatomy. We got deception, desire, and then our next one is right here. It's disobedience. It's verse 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. I want you to look at this animal language. You're lured and enticed. And that is literally fishing language in the ancient world. Lure is a bait that's not real. It has hooks in it, and it wriggles through the water. That's what's happening when we give in to, our, to the deception becomes this temptation, and we bite a hold. Lured like a fish, like the one I caught, or that entice word, that's the word they'd use for trapping animals, like a bear called grasping down on a wolf's leg or a lynx or a, or a bear. And that's what James is saying. When we are lured and enticed, we need to know when we can feel that lure and that enticement, that is the warning signal to say, run away. Things are not going to go well. If you feel that evil desire creeping up, that is the point to stop because right here is the difference between temptation and sin. They're not the same thing. Temptation is the opportunity to sin. Sin is seizing that opportunity and disobeying God. And if you're with us in the fall, we had the Life of David series, and there's a great example. David, he was up on his roof, and he was looking around, and he saw a woman bathing on her roof. And he could have seen this woman and then turned away and just went back downstairs. That would have been a temptation that he successfully resisted, but he didn't do that. He looked again and then called people to go get her. That's sin. That's pursuing adultery. That's lust. And so all of us have a choice. When temptations come, that is the moment to pump the brakes before disobedience, to recognize the evil desire and pump those brakes. And part of this anatomy that's not in this verse, but it's in James 4, 
is we're not alone in this struggle. There's someone who wants you dead out there. Satan seeks and prowls around us to make these lures jiggle, to make these traps sharp. See, Satan, he's the opposite of God, but he's not as equal. But he has been watching us for thousands of years. The serpent, Satan, is ancient. Him, the demons, evil, whatever you want to call it, it's been lurking and watching you and watching your family and watching all humans for thousands of years. They know exactly how our brains and our hearts work. They know how to deceive us. And they're lurking around us. I had a mentor once driving this home with me, and he kind of grabbed me and said, Justin, you need to know there is a demon out there with a tackle box. And in that tackle box, there's a lure with your name written on it. They know exactly how to get you. And it's important we know this, not to just scare us, but to be vigilant that, hey, this is not a neutral playing field. The earth is not neutral. It is against you, that there are forces at work around you. We have to wake up to that reality. And if this sounds fanciful or mystical to you, I'd like to challenge you with something. Is that the lie the devil's already slipped you? That he doesn't exist? That's the stuff of fairy tales and wicked stepmothers and things like that. Because if we're gonna believe the Bible, if we're gonna believe the New Testament, if we're gonna believe upon this Jesus from the New Testament, then we have to believe not an equal, but an opposite devil exists. In Matthew 4, Jesus is having a conversation with him. In Matthew 8, he's throwing demons all out of him, all around Israel. And in Luke 22, we see Judas gets entered into by Satan in order to go betray Jesus. So if we're going to believe in a real, live, tangible Savior that rose from the dead, we have to be aware that there's someone out there who hates us, who Jesus calls, he's the father of lies. He's the one that steals glory from God, and he can't wait to wreck your life. 1 Peter 5, 8 puts it like this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But let's go back to verse 15. I want you to notice again the vivid language because it moves from fishing and trapping to this. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And this is the disobedience. It moves from fishing language to conception. This idea that there's this external thing that's luring us and my internal desire, and they latch together. And what it starts to form in us, for lack of a better term, this is what it's talking about, a sin baby. See, our sin isn't some abstract thing that happens out there or over here. It happens right here. And it keeps growing. And it keeps getting bigger. Look at 15B right here. And says the sin baby starts to grow up and it gives us our final piece of the anatomy. There's deception, there's evil desire, there's disobedience, and then there's death. Because the sin baby grows up and it literally brings spiritual death in our life. And even death in our physical life, even death in our relationships, even death in those things. And the most dangerous thing we can believe about sin as it's growing in us is that we have it under control that we have it under control because we foolishly, we play with or we don't take seriously the temptations and that leads to foolishly playing with or not taking serious the actual sins because we think we're managing the sin. 
I got it under control. This isn't that bad. And we believe little lies. They start to build. This isn't a big deal. No one will find out. I can stop. God forgives me. My friends don't need to know about this. If I keep it secret, that'll help. I can just press it down and press it down and press it down. And while we're busy managing our sin, our sin grows and grows and grows. One day we think we're managing and it grows up and it murders us. Whether spiritually killing us or really wrecking our life. It can steal our life, it can steal our friends, our family, our church, our God. We can get so enraptured and down the hole, this burrow of sin that we can't even see the light anymore. God's a distortion, we don't even know how to repent. And so I warn you as a fellow tempted human being, do not manage your sin, it will murder you. Sin grows, it doesn't just stop. It needs to be repented of or it will grow up and murder you. That is God's word on how sin works. And I wanna share with you the big sin, the big sin that could take you down, the big sin that will take you down if it's left unchecked. It's not gonna be a surprise to you. It's probably already in your life. It may just be in the temptation form. Maybe it's a sin you've dabbled in. Maybe you're already in a bad pattern and in a bad path. But the big sin that's gonna crush and wreck your life isn't gonna hit you like a drunk driver randomly. It's already there. And so the question becomes, do I have any unrepented sin in my life? Do I have any sin in my life that I'm not actively confessing and fighting with the Lord God? And man, I'm not exempt. I was reading this passage and reflecting and I got so convicted because that same cute little girl that I love and I love being around, man, she can be a terror. And instead of me responding graciously for 30 minutes, past that, I'm ill-tempered, I'm impatient. I can feel the anger and bitterness of what my life was like before kids welling up in me. And then I feel terrible because I'm so unthankful. And then that ingratitude just grows and grows unless I repent and talk to my wife like, baby, let's switch out when I'm getting that upset. I need help. I love my daughter. But raising a toddler is a lot. Some of y'all are raising like 10 of them. And the same with my wife. When I'm upset with her and I can feel myself impatient and feel myself not listening in these things, it's not because of my wife's flaws. She's wonderful, but she has flaws, but it's not because of them. It's my issues with control. It's because I can't get it together to trust God. I believe the lie that I better fix this relationship and every interaction to how I want it. Instead of saying, she has the Holy Spirit too, I have the Holy Spirit, and we're going to grow up together by encouraging each other. I swap it for a lie. I better fix this marriage right now, what I don't like. And I love my wife. We have a great marriage. It doesn't mean we don't get impatient with each other. It doesn't mean we don't grow angry with each other sometimes. And the Bible says over and over, more than fight your sin, flee from it. The Bible just says run. I could go to like eight places in the scriptures where you're told, just, just get out of town. Don't play with it. If you feel this far ahead, you're all the, the cuspus of sin, you're at temptation, run and do whatever it takes. John Owen said it like this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And he was right. Because if we take that lure and when we bite down on it, we will be reeled in, hung high and filleted and dead like that fish in the picture. So how do we kill sin? How do we fight? How do we flee? How do we become steadfast when we're starting to splinter at the trial? And God, God's answer to our temptation is not surprising. 
God's answer to our temptations and sin is himself. Because God is greater than our sin. God is the answer to our temptation and our struggle, our sin, because God is greater than our sin. And our sin only seems big when we let our vision of our Savior grow small. Our sin only seems big and that we can't get over it and we can't break the cycle and we can't break the pattern when our vision of our Savior grows small. And so James, like a good pastor, is saying, hey, I'm gonna give you three verses with four big truths to make your vision of God expand because you're not gonna beat sin by white-knuckling through this thing for very long. You have to have your desires met by even greater thing. As tempting as sin is, your gospel, your God has to be bigger to draw you like a moth to a greater flame. And I have the good news for us that God is a bonfire to the candle of sin. We must be drawn and enraptured to our God or we're not gonna make it. And so here, we're gonna put up verses 16 through 18 and we're gonna impact four big truths that are here in the text. It says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Look, he loves us. That's why I'm telling you this. That's why James is writing this. He loves us. Do not be deceived, beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so we should be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. And the first thing I want you to notice, he's called the father of lights. And that's a euphemism, meaning God is the creator. He literally hung the lights, the moon, the stars, the planets, the sun. That's how they talked about him back then. He is the one who created all of that. And because God is a creator, he is greater than our sin because he understands our temptation. There's nothing tempting you right now that God didn't give you for your good. Remember, we're the ones who make these things tempting. God put everything in your life for your good because he created every single thing. And this is an extreme example, but it's a really common example. And the example is pornography is evil, but sex isn't. God created sex for pleasure and procreation within his design of marriage. But we, in our evil desire, twist it. We want sex before marriage, we want sex outside of marriage, we want it whether it's real or virtual. That's our to making it a temptation, something that was a good gift to be, designed, to, be desert, to, be, to be enjoyed under his provision and his plan in our life. And take that with work or money or kids or anything else. That's what we can trust this God. The next big truth is God is constant. He's not just the creator. It says there's no variation or shadow due to change. And I don't know how you feel, but I feel I am anything but constant and consistent, right? With money, you're on one side, you're kind of spending a little wildly, you're sinning that way, you're irresponsible. Well, as soon as you get a budget, you flip over and you're like, oh man, I can't believe they spend like that. We sin on both sides of the aisle. We're not even consistent in our sins. We flip it around all the time. And that's why when we're in, not constant, we need a God who's not just created us, but he is consistent and he is constant in our life. Because God is greater than our sin, that he is constant and he faced these temptations constantly for us. Look with me at Hebrews 4, verse 15. This is talking about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, 
just as we are, yet did not sin. God's greater in your sin because he withstood all the temptations that you face, yet did not sin, then took it to the cross and stared down sin, death, and Satan and endured for us. We can trust a God who created us and is that constant that he is a sure hope when I am anything but a sure bet. It moves on and I hope you feel the swelling. I hope you feel the swelling in your life because you need to know God in the particulars because you have to know something to love something. A vague picture of God is a vague faith and a vague faith is nothing. Our God is a specific God. Our God had a Jesus that rose from the dead on a specific day and will reign forever on this planet. We need our hope specific. So look at this third big truth. As our vision of God, he's creator, he's constant, and God gives good gifts, and his greatest gift is the gospel. Every good thing in your life is from God. That barbecue out with friends, the trees in Louisville, the Olmstead Park designs at Cherokee and everywhere else, Cars, iPhones, Nikes, all these things are good gifts. Beautiful architecture, church building, whatever you enjoy, media, all these are good gifts from God. And, and the big things too, oceans, sky, beaches. That's why real estate's expensive in California. Those things we enjoy. But Christians know the truth. They're not just good things, they're gifts. We don't just like them, they're love letters. Every single good thing in your life is a little glimpse of eternity and God whispering, this is what I'm like. I'm like that sunset. I'm like that first ray of beam in the morning. I'm like this newborn baby that's new and fresh and beautiful and innocent. I'm like, I'm like everything good in your life and they're just little foretastes saying, keep going, keep going. They're dispatches from a far land to our life as a love letter to keep going. And the greatest love letter, Jesus is, God is greater than our sin because he gave us this gift of the gospel. And it says, he brings us forth by the word of truth in the former passage. And the word of truth, that's just Jesus, that's just James's words for the gospel. He's given us the word of truth to bring us forth. And the gospel, just so we remember, that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. The gospel is that Jesus died to forgive our sin and also free us from our sin, that we can walk with victory over our sin. And I love it. If you're in the house tonight or today and you, you're thinking, man, I am just a mess. I'm a mess. The more we talk about this sin, the more I realize I'm a mess. Why, you're in good hands with Jesus because he is your Messiah. Look at Mark 2, 17 with me. When Jesus heard this, he's gathered, there's tons of people around him. He told them, healthy people do, don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. If you're sinning right now, if you're in the anatomy of sin, if you're so lost that you've already buried your head in this sermon, I have good news for you. Jesus is for you. Jesus is for saving sinners. And if you're in the room today and you're like, well, I, I'm not really broken, I'm not really struggling, I don't really have sin, sin in my life, I got news for you. You're the most broken person in the room. Because the most broken person in this room isn't the one who sinned the most, it isn't the one who sinned the most grossly, it isn't the one who sins the most often. The most broken person in this room is the one who doesn't think they need God. Whoever needs God the least is the most lost person in the room. 
And that's the big lie from the devil. That's the master deception that we're God and we don't need him. Religion is just something I do occasionally. This isn't my hope. Those are the lies. And whether you're deeply prideful and don't see your brokenness or you're deeply broken because you can feel the brokenness, your same hope is a Jesus that rose from the dead for you. He created us, he's constant, and he's given us Christ. And let your vision grow, let it grow in your heart, church. Because here's the last verse, verse 18. He's he created, he's constant, he's, he's given us Christ, and he's making us first fruits. Of his own, he brought us forth by the word of his truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And first fruits is a loaded phrase in the Bible, but basically it means when you see the fruit, in, like right now, the, the flower and it blossoms in little fruit forms, the first fruits in the late spring just tell you there's more to come. There's more fruit to come. And Jesus says, I see how beautiful the world is and I desperately know how broken it is and I'm gonna remake all of it and I'm starting with you. The kingdom of God starts with you and your heart where Jesus starts to reign and starts to put right every wrong, starting with you and expanding to the whole world. That's what it means. We're the first fruits of creation that we're going somewhere. There's a finish line coming. And that's why God is greater than our sin. He is greater than our sin because he's creating us anew. God is this constant creator. They didn't walk away when Adam and Eve, they were deceived and then they desired, then they disobeyed, and then they experienced death that spread to the whole world. God didn't walk away then and he's not walking away from you today. God is involved. God is big, and he's bigger in our sin. And we need to look at the anatomy sin to flee from our sin and flee to Christ. But the truth about temptation, I hope this is becoming clear, that God is greater than your sin, and your sin only seems big when your vision of the Savior is small. And by clinging on to truths like this, your vision gets bigger of our Savior. So I wanna call us to action. Two things. Book of James over and over, we'll get to a verse soon that says, when you read the scriptures, it's like looking into a mirror. You'd be a fool to then walk away and forget what you look like. We gotta evaluate. And I wanna give you some questions to help you evaluate today. You could write them down. You could use them at CG. You could pull a friend aside. You could do them in your heart first. What unrepented sin is in your life? Can you feel it growing? All sin grows that's unrepented of. That's what the scripture tells us. It's not if, it is. What current temptation sin might just kill me spiritually, might just kill me, wreck my life. And the Christian, even, if, even when he sins, he has a hope, he has a savior. But for the non-Christian, it remains death. What, de what deceptions or lies might I be believing right now about God or myself? And the second thing I want you to do, it's a simple one, I want you to flee from sin and flee to Christ. Take the bulletin, take your notes, take the passage, and maybe just for a week, pin it somewhere and just reflect, do I believe God's my creator, he's constant, he gave me Christ and I'm the first fruits of the new creation? And start to remind yourself and get some handles that God's just not big out there, he's big for you right here and he's greater than your sin today. And some of y'all are at the sermon and you're feeling all right, you know? And I'm, I, to be honest, I'm really glad you're feeling all right. If you're feeling all right because you're repenting of sin, you're fighting, you're confessing, you have great community, you're in the trenches with your sin, good. But have you ever seen a marathon? 
See, the Louisville Marathon, its route goes right by my house. They barricade off my street, so there's nothing to do or go. So we sit on the porch and we cheer on the runners. And it's fun, it's funner with kids and neighbors. But then I've noticed something. The best runners that run the marathon in two or three hours and they're, they're rolling, they're looking to win, they have the most crowd support because people come out, it's early in the morning and it's nice and cool and people are cheering and cheering and they're rolling, man, I could never do that. And then there's the next segment of runners from hours four to eight and these people are in shape and they're working it and they're going hard and they finish. But then there's another group of runners, the like eight to 12 hour Man, and they're walking at some point by the time they get to my house, I'm on like mile 20, but they're finishing. And then they remove the barricades, traffic resumes, by then there's no one in the crowd. And there's actually another group of runners. Those who are basically walking, pouring sweat, they didn't get to finish at 11 a.m., they're trying to finish at 3 p.m. in the middle of the sun here in April. And I think spiritually, we think God is on the sidelines cheering on all the best runners, cheering on all the champions who are finishing fast, cheering on the Jamals who are another powerhouse sermon, Jamal, way to go. All those who are being steadfast, we think God is cheering them on, whether it's someone famous like Thabiti or or Beth Moore or it's your grandma who hasn't sinned since the 90s. You know, we think your CG leader, this pastor or that pastor, we think God is just on the sideline. You do it, you're gonna get your PR, personal best. You're gonna do it. And we think God is just cheering them on. And I think he is. But I think it'd be more accurate to say if God is the father of lights, God is the dad who's standing on the sidewalk and the race has been over for hours. And he's cheering on his son that's lost 50 pounds, but he has 100 more to go, but he said in his heart, I'm gonna do this marathon, it's a milestone in my life, and I'm gonna finish no matter what. And God is that dad saying, I'm with you, son, and we're gonna make it to the end. He's all alone, there's traffic everywhere, and God doesn't care. He's the one cheering on his son every step of the way, saying, I know you're struggling, I know you've fallen down, I know you have blood on your knees, I know you have snot on your face, I know you're crying because it hurts so bad, but I am with you and I am for you, and if I have to, I'm gonna carry you through the finish line. And if your hope is in Christ, you know that God is like that. He is not the one just cheering on the winners. Because the truth is, there are no winners. We're all losers. God is not standing at the victory circle eating hot dogs. He's in the trenches with you, and he is sweating out every ounce under the sun with you, and he's gonna carry you home if he needs to. That's the God who leaves the 91 to go get the one. And he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He loves it. God is not impressed with your spiritual performance. He's impressed with Jesus. And if you belong with Jesus, he's sticking it out with you every grueling mile. And that's our hope, a God who is bigger than our sin. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and said, drink of this to remember my blood shed for you. And we take communion every week here at Sojourn because we remember what Christ has done for us in the gospel, but we also look forward that we're going somewhere. These are first fruits and Christ is going to return. And I wanna caution you, this is a good sermon to caution you, that in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, examine your conscience before you take of the Lord's table, if you take of these elements. 
that if you have any unrepented sin in you, deal with that before God, before coming to take this table. This table is only for Christians, and specifically for Christians who are fleeing their sin and fighting for faith. Our tradition is to break off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice or wine. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. We have stations in the front half of the room for the front half of the room. We have stations in the back for the back half of the room. Gluten-free communion is to my left, your right. Let us pray.